He says, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. Now, if a man lies carnally with a woman who is a slave acquired for another man, but who has in no way been redeemed nor given her freedom, there shall be punishment. They shall not, however, be put to death because she was not free. He shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord, to the doorway of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. The priest shall also make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin, which he has committed, and the sin which he has committed will be forgiven him. When you enter the land and plant all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. In the fifth year you are to eat of its fruit, that its yield may increase for you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. You shall not round off the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a harlot, so that the land will not fall to harlotry, and the land become full of lewdness. You shall keep my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, and you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. You shall thus observe all my statutes and all my ordinances, and do them. I am the Lord. Now, last week as we had begun working our way through chapter 19, we had worked our way up to verse 16, and what we observed there is how the Israelites were to live as God's holy people. This was the kind of the foundational verse there up in early in the chapter, verse 2, speak to the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. And, uh, and so much of what we saw last week is actually summarized here in verse 18 by the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when we look here to verses 17 and 18, we'll spend a little bit of time here, and we could almost call this first section of the sermon, love your neighbor as yourself in context. Because let's uh, 
obviously we, we know the, the law of verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we know from Jesus' usage of it and the apostles' usage of it in the New Testament that there are, uh, there's a broad, very broad application of this. But it is, I think, instructive to consider it here in its original context in the law. And so if we read there in verse 17 and 18, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The context here of this oft-repeated and oft-applied law, the context is conflict resolution. The law here seems to be directed toward situations in which an offense was committed by someone against someone else, And in such a situation, it is easy to see how hatred could grow and take root in the heart. But this must not be. It is forbidden. Not only are hateful words and hateful actions prohibited, but also hatred in the heart. This is out of bounds for God's holy people. It is not permitted. And so if someone commits an offense against you, what is to be done? Verse 17 tells us, you may surely reprove your neighbor. King James was a little more forceful in its translation when it said, thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor. Or as ESV puts it, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. This is exactly what Jesus taught us in Matthew 18.15, right? If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. This is something that should be done. When an offense has been committed by our neighbor, by our brother, we need to reprove him or her. Why? So that we will not share in their guilt. We need to be the one turning someone back from destruction, not suffering them to go on unwarned. To do such would be tantamount to hating our neighbor and participating, as it were, in their downfall. And therefore, Proverbs 13.24 tells us that he who withholds his rod, hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Rebuke and discipline may have an appearance of being unloving, but the opposite is actually true. And thus James tells us in James 5, 19 and 20, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So let me be honest, this is not easy. At least I'll say for myself, it's not easy for me, but it must be done. Hard conversations must sometimes be had. Sometimes we're the one doing the confronting. Sometimes we are the one who is actually being confronted. If we're the one doing the confronting, it must be done in love. And if we're the one who is being confronted, we must receive it in love. Now, let's face it. If we are Christians, we know that we are sinners. It should not be news to any one of us who is a Christian that we are sinners. And if someone brings a particular sin of ours to our attention, and it's truly a sin, the right response is repentance. The right response is not self-justification. The right response is not, how dare he or she point out my sin? Who do they think they are? Again, if we're Christians, it's not news to us that we are sinners. 
And if we're Christians, we believe the forgiveness of sins. We know how to approach the throne of grace and how to ask for forgiveness. Now, certainly, there can be misunderstandings in this, right? Someone can think that you have sinned in a given way, and you haven't. That obviously makes the situation a little bit different. In such a case, the confronter needs to be open to considering that maybe there are some things they haven't fully understood. All that we can see are actions. We can't see the heart. We can't see motives. We're not able to see the intents behind the actions. But if the case is clear and the action is sinful, we see here in the text, you shall surely reprove your neighbor. This is both for our good and for their good. But notice the cautions that are held out to us there in verse, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance, nor shall you bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And this is very helpful, because it's easy when an offense has been committed, particularly an offense committed against us personally, to allow the offendedness which we feel to to fester, and eventually to boil. And if it does, it can result either in outright vengeance, be it the form of overt violence, or be it somehow taking vengeance by doing something to take advantage of them, or whatever, some overt form of seeking to get even. This is out of bounds. Personal vengeance of all kinds. Is forbidden. Even the vengeance of abusive language, the vengeance of just letting them have it, this is forbidden. And also forbidden here is the bearing of a grudge. That is to say, we are not allowed to retain enmity in our hearts for the wrongs which others have done, even the wrongs which others have done to us. This enmity or bearing a grudge could show itself in refusing to do good to the person, or perhaps the enmity might almost be stuffed up in the heart to the place where we're doing a pretty good job hiding it. And it doesn't show itself, at least not too much. But even this is forbidden. We must not bear any grudge. As the layout of verse 18 makes clear, the taking of vengeance and the bearing of the grudge are forbidden by that which is the opposite. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These, these two things are opposites. Taking vengeance, bearing the grudge, these are out of bounds. What is called for and commanded is loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, obviously, forgiveness can be very challenging. People can hurt us. People can do really bad and very wicked things to us. When this happens, we can and should confront. We can and should hold people accountable. When there is a failure of repentance on the part of the guilty party, the steps of Matthew 18 are applicable. In the case of civil crimes, it is appropriate to get the police and civil authorities of all involved. But even then, where the intent was malicious, the sin was clear, the repentance non-existent, even then, the scriptures will not sanction us in holding grudges any more than they will sanction personal vengeance, personal revenge. Even if the offender goes to jail, even if the offender has to be treated like a Gentile or a tax collector, even then, we're not permitted to hold a grudge any more than we are permitted to take an act of personal vengeance. In one of uh, the last conversations that I had with my grandfather before he died, he told me 
of an event that had happened over 70 years prior when he was a teenager at his stepfather's bedside. And I don't know what all went down between my grandfather and his stepdad, but I know that it wasn't good. And I know that there was a lot of hurtful meanness directed toward my grandfather from his stepdad. And Gramps said that there on his deathbed, his stepdad asked his forgiveness. And 15 minutes later, he died. And in that conversation that I was having with my grandpa, I asked him if he felt that in his heart he was able to forgive. And Gramps said to me, you've got to, because the book says so. And of course, what my grandfather was referring to was the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 14 and 15, following the Lord's Prayer, in which he said, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. I understand there are some situations in which a full reconciliation is not possible or viable, but even then we must hold no ill will or animosity in our hearts. The command to love our neighbor as ourselves has all sorts of applications, as the Lord Jesus and the New Testament writers make abundantly clear, but its roots are here in conflict resolution, and it is set directly opposite to taking vengeance and bearing a grudge. Now, as we, as we move on here and look, look more broadly and, and more quickly at uh, the remaining verses here in the chapter, the second half, beginning here in verse 19, contains an even wider variety of laws than the first half of the chapter. Last, uh, last time, last week, as we were looking through the opening verses here, we were, we were kind of hitting a lot of, a lot of different things. Um, verses 19 through the end of the chapter, there's... there's an even greater variety of things. But verse 19 opens with this seemingly odd command prohibiting the breeding of two kinds of cattle, the prohibition of sowing a field of two kinds of seed, and a prohibition of wearing a garment of two kinds of material mixed together. Now the, the latter of these three commands seems to have been limited to the layman, of Israel, inasmuch as the priestly garments did actually contain a mixture of woven yarn and, and twisted linen, according to the garments as described in Exodus 28:6 and uh, Exodus 28:15, Exodus 39:29. And though these three commands of verse 19 were to be literally applied, the idea behind them seems to be uh, representative or symbolic. These commands were commands which, as it were, typified the holiness and the separateness which the Israelites were to maintain in the world. And as such, this verse, perhaps in a sense, functions in parallel to verse 2 towards the beginning of the chapter as a call to holiness. In other words, just as verse 2 says, speak to the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So also this command in verse 19 about not mixing together two kinds of cattle, two kinds of seed in a field, or two kinds of material in a garment seems also to be a, uh, a representative call to holiness. And thus, in 
all of the various situations that follow from verse 19, Israel was to conduct themselves as holy to the Lord, not according to the patterns of the pagan nations around them. Now, in verses 20 through 22, we have this case law in which a free man sleeps with a slave woman who has been essentially pledged to another man but not yet redeemed from her slavery. The situation seems uh, different than the case law of Deuteronomy 22 because if she were a free woman and were betrothed, a different set of rules apply. If the act, according to Deuteronomy 22, if this act had taken place in a city, they would both be killed under the supposition that this was essentially willful adultery on the part of them both. If the act had taken place in the countryside, only the man was to be killed on the supposition that this was not willful adultery but rape. The case before us is actually different from either one of those two. It was intended for her to be married to another man, but she was not yet redeemed from her slavery. And so, in a sense, whatever the the arrangement was, it was not regarded, apparently, as a full-fledged betrothal, as it would have been if she were free. And also, there is uh, there may be an element here of a power disparity between the free man and the enslaved woman, perhaps some coercion, perhaps a greater power of persuasion, or something of that nature. And thus, given the, the various factors of the case, the law is different than the case involving a free man and a free woman. The law states in verse 20 that there shall be punishment. The ESV is more mild in its translation when it says that a distinction shall be made. King James Version, more severe when it says she shall be scourged. My sense is that the King James Version is actually pointing in the right direction as far as what the what the law required, the lexical definition of the Hebrew word used here is punishment after examination. Septuagint translated the word as episcopate, which means a visitation, seemingly a visitation of an unpleasant kind. And so this word only shows up once in the Hebrew Old Testament, apparently, apparently right here in verse 20. The construction is said to be in the singular and feminine, and therefore the Jewish writers understood the scourging to be that of the woman, while the man was to bring a guilt offering. And so the Jewish Mishnah, which is the first major collection of Jewish oral tradition, reportedly stated that all uncleanness, whether of a man or of a woman, are alike as to stripes and sacrifice. But with respect to uh, the bondmaid, God has not made the man equal to the woman as to stripes, nor the woman to the man as to sacrifice. And so, in other words, they, there was punishment for them both. Punishment for the woman was scourging. Punishment for the man was bringing this ram for a sacrifice. And the particular type of sacrifice is a guilt offering. If you recall from our discussions of the guilt offerings back in Leviticus 5 and 6, the guilt offerings were made for cases where there needed to be some kind of reparation or restitution. And this seems fitting for the case in which a man slept with a woman who was intended for someone else, even though the betrothal in this case was apparently not full and complete. And so obviously this, this law seems very odd to us, but I think one helpful thing that we can see here in Uh, and glean from this law is that the punishment for a crime or a sin 
is not a one-size-fits-all thing. The Lord takes into account the different circumstances of the people involved in allotting their punishment. And different circumstances may call for different measures. And I think that practically this may have some ramifications for how we as a church respond to sin. Sin is not monolithic. It comes in all shapes and sizes. The perpetrators of sin are in different situations. And as a church, when we deal with disciplinary cases and so on, we need to be looking not simply at the outward sinful action, but also whatever nuances may be present in the case at hand. Obviously, we don't want to do this in such a way that we turn a blind eye to the sin that demands a response, and that is certainly not what was done here in the law. But at the same time, we do need to realize that though outward actions may be the same, there may be differences in circumstance that therefore demand a different response in the way that we handle the particular case at hand. Now, the law of verses 23 through 25 concerning the eating of fruit from trees that uh, would be planted seems to be a reminder to the people that the land ultimately belonged to the Lord. The Lord would provide abundantly and provide graciously for his people, but they were to do so under his authority. They were to do so trusting in him, trusting that after five years they could eat the fruit and that they would be blessed in their obedience to serve him, but they must serve him in his way. The law in verses 26 through 28 and also the law down in verse 31 forbidding the... Uh, forbid the turning aside into to pagan practices, divination, soothsaying, turning aside to spiritists and mediums. These things are wicked. These things are satanic. And the Lord's holy people must have nothing to do with them. In our context, think psychics, Ouija boards, horoscopes, astrology, etc. When I was in seminary, I used to do some odd jobs uh, for a woman uh, who was into and seems to have been a practitioner of some of these kind of things. I would pull weeds in her yard and uh, do just kind of odd jobs around, around her house. And one time my roommate and I were, were helping her move and we were packing up some, some books from, uh, from one of her rooms and there were was, there was some doozies in there. And there was one that had the, uh, the title, The Only Book on Astrology You'll Ever Need. And my roommate, Adam, was, was pretty quick on his feet, and he said, that's close to the number I would recommend. <laughs> and, and he was right. The number he meant was zero. We can't, we can't have anything to do with this. Though some who practice these things may be just, just faking it and making stuff up, sometimes they probably actually are in contact with the demonic realm, and that results in the practitioner's saying some of the things that they do. Andrew Bonar put it this way, probably the devil was allowed to deceive his willing slaves by some extraordinary communication made to them respecting common things. Satan sees much by his sagacity that men do not, though the future is unknown to him. And so when... We're interacting with people, and they may be talking to us about this kind of stuff. I think we need to recognize that there's probably two kinds of things that go on in this realm. Sometimes people are just just making up stuff, saying, I'm a, I'm a psychic, I'm a witch, whatever. Sometimes people actually may be dabbling in 
the darkness of the demonic realm, and they may have some insights that they have gleaned from demons. And we, we shouldn't be messing around with, with any of it, whether they're faking it, whether they're actually in contact with the demonic. This is out of bounds for, for God's holy people. Galatians, uh, Galatians 5, contrasting the, the fruit of the Spirit with the works of the flesh, makes this abundantly clear that witchcraft is, is off the table for us as Christians. The, the eating of blood referred to in verse 26 uh, may be spoken of here in uh, direct reference to, to pagan practice in, in terms of their worship or some superstitious or occultic practice. So avoiding the idolatrous customs of the nation seems also to be what was in mind here uh, with regard to verse 27, the, the rounding off of the side growth of the heads or harming the edges of their beards. Though it seems strange to us, this was apparently the practice that was carried out, that people would, would cut their hair in such a fashion so as to honor their gods. The, uh, the ancient historian Herodotus said that the Arabians did this, that they cut their hair in a certain way to honor their gods. And again, the Israelites can have nothing to do with these, with these pagan practices. And the same seems to be in view here in verse 28 in regard to the, the cutting of their bodies for the dead and the making of tattoo marks. The, the cutting of the flesh seems perhaps to have been done uh, so as to appease the spirits uh, in regard to those who had died or perhaps to make atonement for those who had died or something of that nature. And the tattoo marks in view here seem... Uh, to have been marking out the worshipers of a particular god, that a, a person would essentially receive an idolatrous tattoo that marked them out as servant of their idol, and hence the prohibition. Obviously, God's holy people cannot be marked out for a false god in any way. Now, I realize that among Christians, there are different convictions and preferences and tastes uh, in regard to this issue of tattoo, now, my sense is that given the proximity of this command about tattoos to the command of the trimming of the hair and of beards, that, and, and apparently the, the same reason that lies behind both sets of commands is that there is liberty for Christians to round off the side growth of their heads and to, to cut the edges of their beards. And if that is the case, there is probably also liberty in regard to the issue of, of tattoos. But with that said, in neither case may such liberty be abused and put in the service of worship. Let me just give an example. It's not a sin for a man to shave his head, but it would be sinful if his purpose in shaving his head was to mark himself out as a neo-Nazi or something like that. You, you see what I mean? And we could speak similarly in regard to the subject of tattoos. Verse 29 seems directed also against idolatry in as much as the idolatry of Canaan involved often the use of, of temple prostitutes. Physical prostitution and spiritual prostitution often went hand in hand. And again, the, the people of God are not allowed to mix with the practices of the nations, but were to be holy unto the Lord. And notice there the, the contrast in verse 32, that rather than revering the dead by, by cutting themselves for them or by seeking them out by means of mediums and spiritists, God's people, or to revere the living by rising up before the gray-headed and honoring the aged. 
And we ought to still do this today. Obviously, the truth of Proverbs 16.31 is proverbial in its nature, and there are certainly exceptions to the rule, but nevertheless, the proverbial truth is that a gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. We still do well to honor those who are older, especially those who are older in the Lord. Verses 33 and 34 have to do with the way in which the people of God were to receive the strangers and aliens who resided among them. They were to do him no wrong. They were to love him as the native-born. They were to learn from their own history of having been aliens in the land of Egypt and to love the aliens among them as themselves. And the current application of this law seems to me to be the call to love all of our neighbors, to love those of different ethnic and national backgrounds, and also to love those who are, as of yet, non-believers. People are different from one another. In most places, there are going to be majority cultures and non-majority cultures. People are going to have a first language. Some of us, for good or ill, only have one language in which we can converse. Others are, are more gifted in that regard, and that is wonderful. But there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these things, being of a majority culture or of a minority culture, speaking one language instead of another, or having one first language instead of a second language, or having two or three or more language equally. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of that. It's okay and wonderful. But as God's holy people, we need to be kind and loving toward all of our neighbors, whether they look like us or not, whether they speak the same language we do or not, whether their customs, culture, or even religion are the same as ours or not, we still need to love them. We still need to do good to them and care for them. And then verses 35 and 36 conclude the specific commands of the chapter by calling for just weights and measurements. This is an implication of the ninth commandment, that you shall not bear false witness. Also, an implication of the commandment, you shall not steal. This is a call to be fair in, in commerce. We want to, uh, you know, sometimes you go to the gas station, and if you've ever read the, uh, read the sign up there on the pump, it'll say, you know, this has been certified by the comptroller or, or whatever. And, and that's, that's what they're going for, fair weights and measures. That The sign says it's $3.29 a gallon. It better be a gallon of gas that we're getting out of there when we pay $3.29, right? And... Uh, my father once told me uh, that when he was a child, part of the things that, uh, the way things went at his grandma's house was that they were supposed to pick a certain volume of green beans before they, before they went inside or, or whatever. And, and I don't know if it was a bushel or a peck or, or what, that they were supposed to pick this volume. And dad said that, that some of his cousins would kind of kind of fluff up the green beans to try to try to make that volume look a little little bigger than it actually was and he said that he being of a tender conscience would kind of kind of squash him down to uh, to make sure that he had picked enough but again the point is that we want just weights and measurements we want to be fair in our dealings with other people if we're selling a gallon of gas a gallon of milk 10 pounds of whatever we want to make sure that we're actually giving what we're saying that we're giving. We have to be fair and honest in our dealings, even as the Lord himself is just in all of his ways. This is how, how we love our neighbors, by being fair in our dealings with them. 
Now again, as we saw last week, this, this chapter has covered a lot of ground. It covers a lot of different situations. Almost all, if not all, of the Ten Commandments are covered here in one form or another here in chapter 19. This chapter shows us how to live as holy. This chapter shows us how to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so as we, as we think about these things, we need to allow the law to do its work, to allow the law to instruct us in what is pleasing to God so that with the help of the Spirit we can frame our lives accordingly and to allow the law to do its convicting work in us as well. As James reminds us, we read earlier tonight, James 2.10, that he who keeps the whole law yet stumbles at one point becomes guilty of all. And so we need to allow the, allow the law of God to drive us to Christ for forgiveness and for new life. Even though you may have outwardly kept many of these laws, you certainly haven't kept them all, and you certainly have not kept them all in your heart. We've been guilty of one thing, and therefore guilty of all. We've been guilty of more than one thing, and still, therefore, guilty of all. And the law's standard is perfection, for it said, Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. It's found in Deuteronomy. Paul quotes it in Galatians chapter 3. If we're going to live by the standard of the law, the standard of the law is perfection. We haven't met it. And since we are under the curse of the law, therefore, let us never look to the law for our life and salvation. This can only come from Christ, who kept it all and saves all who come to him in repentance of faith. So again, let's let the law do its work. Let's look to it and learn from it how we are to frame our lives in a way that is holy and pleasing and acceptable to God, how we can love our neighbors, how we can love the Lord, and let's also allow the law to do its work in us by driving us to Christ in repentance and faith, taking fresh hope in Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word and its truth. We ask, Lord, that You would strengthen us, that You build us up in Christ that you would conform us, Father, to his image. We know that Christ fully obeyed your law as we have read it here and your law in the parts that we have not read here tonight. We are thankful for his obedience, his perfect obedience, which is imputed unto us through faith. For we know that we have not kept the law, but we praise you that Christ kept it in our place. And we ask now for the help of your spirit that we would live as holy unto you that we would turn from our sinful ways, that we would love you, that we would love our neighbors. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.